Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Jacob Foster, an attorney at Kazowitz, Benson, Torres, and Friedman, LLP, and your chair for today's event. We also welcome our listening audience, and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker. (coughs) David Kay is a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression. His report to the UN Human Rights Council on the Use of Encryption and Anonymity in Digital Communications concluded that encryption enables individuals to exercise their rights to freedom of opinion and expression in the digital age, and as such merits strong protection. The report has been described in the media as groundbreaking, a landmark, and hugely influential on a vibrant political debate that is currently occurring all around the world. Please join me in welcoming David Kay. Thanks, Thanks, Jacob. So um, thank you all for being here. I I think maybe what I should do, because the title that I have is a little unwieldy and a little I mean, if your title has special in it, it sounds a little obnoxious. Um, maybe I'll say a couple of words about, um, about the framework of human rights uh, at the UN level, and I'll try to keep that pretty brief, and then spend a few minutes talking about um, what a, the subject matter really is, and that's national security and freedom of expression. And really, w- when we say national security and freedom of expression, I'm referring to how national security is used to undermine freedom of expression around the world. So let me first say a few words about what it, what it means to be a special rapporteur, that kind of title that gets my kids' eyes rolling at me. So um, the central human rights body of the United Nations is the Human Rights Council. It's actually a part of the General Assembly. The Human Rights Council consists of about a little less than 50 states, 50 governments, uh, and they do a number of things. They review other states' human rights practices. Uh, They adopt resolutions on different human rights uh, issues around the world. Uh, And they also um, have something called special procedures. So they, um, the Human Rights Council appoints um, different, we'll say experts to monitor different areas of human rights around the world. And there are about 50 who are either special rapporteurs as I am, so individuals who focus on a particular area, um, or working groups, and there's a handful of working groups that focus on areas. So for special rapporteurs, there's, minus, I focus on freedom of opinion and expression. There's also 
uh, freedom of assembly and association, freedom of human rights defenders, um, a new rapporteur on privacy, um, and I could go down a list, and that's just the civil and political rights oriented rapporteurs, and there are also those who focus on economic, social, and cultural rights. Human rights in the, at the international level tends to be divided between economic, social, and cultural rights, housing, education, and so forth, um, and civil and political rights, expression, political engagement, and so forth. So, um, so I was appointed about a year and a half ago, a little over a year and a half ago, to take on this role. And at the time, it was pretty clear, as it's been clear for several years, um, that there's a range of threats to freedom of expression around the world, um, and that many of them tend to focus on uh, or hinge upon arguments about national security. So I want to talk a little bit about um, how national security is used I would say abused uh, around the world at a global level, and then talk a little bit about the um, how it's abused in the West and how that's really a problem as we try to expand human rights protections around the world. I mean, really, what we do in the West uh, has a real impact, and it's not just a rhetorical impact; it's actually having a real impact on policies that are adopted around the world. So, first, let me let me start with a little global um, overview. Um, and, and to give a little footnote here, um, the way that we as rapporteurs work in the human rights system at the UN level is we report to the Human Rights Council on a variety of issues. So I'll report, obviously all within freedom of expression, I'll report on communications that I receive from human rights defenders around the world. And we, in turn, report directly to governments. So we will raise allegations with governments about violations of freedom of opinion, freedom of expression. Um, and those get reported to the Human Rights Council. I also do thematic reporting. So as Jacob mentioned, uh, our report on encryption and anonymity was a thematic report, almost like a, um, you know, a, a law review kind of article, not quite as, um, well, not quite as dull as a law review article, hopefully. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, they might, law review articles also must be read. Um, so, uh, so we do thematic reporting, do the, the um, sort of communications with governments and also country visits. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Tajikistan, which is in Central Asia and has a 1500 kilometer border with Afghanistan. Um, and is um, and, and I'll talk about that as an example in a moment. Okay, so that was just a little bit of sort of the scene setting. One of the things that we've seen, uh, not just over the last couple of years, but historically really, is how governments use national security to undermine freedom of expression. So that actually, under the freedom of expression as a human right, um, is a legitimate basis for restriction, right? So under human rights law, Everybody enjoy, and this is actually one of those rare human rights treaties to which the United States is a party. We're bound by the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. This is also language from the Universal, of Declaration, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everybody enjoys the right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers. So it's kind of a trans-boundary, right? It's my right to get information from, you know, another country. Um, through any media, including art, it's a pretty remarkable right um, to a certain extent. And even though, as you'll see in the restrictions, it's narrower to a certain extent than our own First Amendment law, 
It's broader in the sense that it refers to everybody's right to freedom of expression rather than posed in the negative as First Amendment law is, which is Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. So what we've seen over the last couple of years is states using the restrictions under human rights law. And the restrictions are as follows. So even while everyone has the right to freedom of expression, states are permitted under human rights law to restrict that freedom of expression where it's provided by law, so there's an existing law, and it's a necessary restriction in order to protect a legitimate interest. And one of those legitimate interests that's named in Article 19 of the covenant that I mentioned is national security. So public order, national security, and a couple other areas. States increasingly use that restriction on national security in order to restrict freedom of expression. And we see it in a few different ways. We see it in terms of censorship. So countries quite regularly uh, simply restrict websites, restrict um, newspapers. There's a, an interesting case from a couple of months ago where um, there was a report in Thailand in the International New York Times about corruption in Thailand. And um, the entire front page, basically, of the New York Times, the International New York Times in Thailand was redacted. So if you got the paper, you would see sort of a blank space. The reason, we actually don't know. The government of Thailand didn't explain it, um, why this was. It's likely that they would have said public order or national security for um, for reasons probably that don't have much to do with the actual reporting. But we see a lot of censorship around the world. We also see, particularly in a digital age, we see states requiring telecom operators, so either your ISPs or your phone company, requiring them to take down the internet, whether taking down service entirely, so bringing down the internet. I mean, this has happened repeatedly in Central African Republic, in Burundi, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, so in, in several other places in Africa, also in Tajikistan, uh, and in a, no a number of places in Central Asia, where on grounds of national security, the state will say, we're ending service for this period of time. Maybe it's in the lead up to an election. Maybe it's during a public assembly, a public protest. Uh, and it's something that we see pretty, um, in a pretty common way. It's happening all the time. So these kinds of things are happening. There's also law on the books around the world related to defamation. Um, so criminalizing defamation uh, where you defame a government official. Right, so in Thailand, sorry to pick on Thailand. Um, in Thailand, it's called Les Majestés laws where you can't insult the king. Many of you might have heard about that. Um, but it's increasingly used as a tool to undermine criticism of government officials and really to undermine criticism generally of government policy. Okay, so those kinds of things are happening at the global level and increasingly the threat of terrorism is used as the, um, as the reason to do that. So what's the connection to what's happening in the West? So um, one of the things we've seen over the last, I would say year to year and a half, but has really picked up quite a bit of, uh, of momentum in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo shootings uh, in Paris, the killings in Paris, Paris, January of last year, has been states in the West adopting rules that are really strongly um, undermining freedom of expression. And we see them in a different, a bunch of different ways. So one way that we see it is in terms of content restriction. So we'll see, um, for instance, in France, um, the criminalization of the glorification of terrorism. 
nobody really likes terrorism to be glorified, but you know, what does that actually mean? Well, it means a variety of things and it probably isn't very well defined. It's not very well defined in French law. It's not very well defined in European law, but increasingly you see that kind of restriction on glorification of terrorism uh, across, across Europe. Um, you see it in Spain as well, and you see it in other places. So that's one kind of content restriction that is on its face based on counterterrorism and national security, but it's also often used, particularly uh, in the context of emergency laws that have been imposed in France since the awful shootings, the massacres of November uh, in Paris, um, used really to shut down public discussion of terrorism. Um, it's happening in particular in minority communities, so in Muslim communities uh, in, uh, in France, uh, but it's an issue that whether it's being imposed and implemented in ways that might be narrow or not, it's giving a signal to those outside of liberal democratic states um, that this is the kind of restriction that's acceptable. So that's one example, sort of the increasing content restrictions that we see across, across Europe. A second is um, related more to surveillance. So one of the things that we've seen, again, in France, we see it in the um, investigatory powers bill that is being considered in the United Kingdom right now. Um, we've seen it in Spain. We see it probably coming down the pike in Poland. So we're talking about you know, countries in the European Union that are bound by standards of the European Court of Human Rights, the European Convention of Human Rights. Um, they're undermining uh, encryption. So what is encryption? It's, it's math. So my eyes used to glaze over also. Um, I mean, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, I went to law, so I wouldn't have to do math anymore. But encryption, encryption is actually a fundamental protection for individual privacy, for your communication. Um, I mean, oftentimes, uh, I mean, I ask this question, how many people in the room use encryption? We could ask, that is a good raising of hands, but actually probably more hands can go up because encryption is you know, how you do your mobile banking. It's essential to the internet. Essentially, it's essential to protection of you, unless you have um, Anthem Blue Cross. Um, it's essential to the protection of your health data, right? So it's actually um, one of the fundamental protections of, you know, of individual privacy. It's also fundamental uh, to the way we communicate, right? So obviously, the FBI Apple uh, debate of the last you know, six weeks or so has heightened and, and highlighted the, the issue. And, and maybe we can talk a little bit yeah. more about that in, in, as we talk through. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. 
After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. But one thing around the world that um, encryption is important for is the ability of activists, um, the ability of vulnerable communities to communicate with one another, to um, create community online. If you're, let's say, uh, you're a minority uh, in a place where um, uh, the, the overwhelming majority opinion is against your, your views, whether it's religious or ethnic or whatnot, you know, having a public space to engage uh, and interact with people is pretty difficult to find. So, or as an example, there was, um, someone wrote a really great paper last year on atheists in the Arab world, right? Atheism in some countries in the Arab world is apostasy and can be, you know, very harshly punished. Individuals who are atheists in the Arab world have tended to use encryption in order to both learn about others who are interested in the same way of thinking about the world, um, but also just to create community. So going back, toggling back to, you know, the United States and Europe, when we talk about undermining encryption, you know, for, you know, let's say legitimate purposes of law enforcement, you know, it's also a signal to the rest of the world that encryption isn't that important and that encryption is something that we can undermine for our own purposes. And look, we define national security or public order by different standards than you do. So it creates a risk. And to go back and this will all end on this on this point. Um, when I was in Tajikistan a couple of weeks ago on an official mission, um, I met with some members of the security apparatus, and they were very clear about their, um, the models that they look to around the world, right? And the models that they look to tend to be Western, right? And they look to what's happening in Europe. They look to the debate that we're having in the United States over digital security. They say, well, look, you're having this debate. Um, so uh, we can also well, they don't have real debate. They've been crushing uh, public space. But putting that aside, you know, they basically said directly to me and to my team, um, you know, we need to take down the Internet. Sometimes we need to compromise encryption because we have national security concerns and we need to understand what's happening in the country. In truth, they have, you know, infinite number of ways to track issues of terrorism. Terrorism itself isn't even a major threat in particular in Tajikistan, although they're going to, um, you know, they talk about the threat on the border with Afghanistan and so forth, but they're looking to us. They're looking to us for models. And I think that it, particularly in areas of national security, 
digital security and so forth, we're, we're doing a poor job of modeling. So, and so uh, tying that into the debate that yeah. we've been having here, particularly in the context of the Apple case, yeah. you know, for a significantly long period of time, the United States has developed a balance whereby law enforcement, with the permission of a court, can go and gain access to private information belonging to individuals. They can conduct search and seizures. They can read someone's mail, look up their library records. And so I guess the question that law enforcement has been raising is that we've historically had this principle, which is now being surpassed by technology, and whether there's ways that we can both have strong encryption and enable access for law enforcement. And I think mm -hmm. the example that law enforcement would give is that until very recently, many of us were carrying cell phones that could be decrypted by the provider, and many of us stored private information on that. But we didn't consider that an unacceptable threat to our privacy or our liberty. And so the question that it raises is whether you believe that there's really any mechanism for lawful government access that does not, at least in theory, create a security vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So technologically, I think it's very difficult to, um, to identify a kind of general way to compromise uh, you know, digital devi our devices, basically. So there are different possibilities out there. There's the idea that you've probably heard about creating backdoors into technology, which is basically just, I mean, backdoor, the FBI will tell you that's um, that's the negative, right? That's a derogatory term for what what, right. what they ultimately want. And I'm not sure they actually want that anymore. Um, well, we'll see. But what they um, what we're talking about is vulnerabilities in the software so that, you know, the, that law enforcement can get into those devices. That's exactly right. Now, the problem with that is that, and this is what technologists as a, general rule will tell you there. I, I don't know technolo technologists who think otherwise, but if you create a vulnerability for law enforcement, that's a vulnerability that will be available to the bad guys as well. It's simply a matter again of math. It's a matter of technology that it's impossible to create a vulnerability that only the good guys have access to. So that's, so that's the, the technological problem, right? I do think though that one of the, um, one of the problems in the debate is the idea that only getting access to the content of our devices is um, is important to law enforcement. We live in what people are talk about as a golden age of surveillance, right? There's so many ways that our devices can be tracked, that our private lives can be kind of deduced simply by looking at the metadata. You know, you, you're you may be using encryption and that protects the content of your communication, but it's not protecting you from, you know, being tracked. It's not protecting when you're making phone calls, unless you're using, you know, an encryption service, which very few people do. It doesn't, you know, prevent you from being surveilled in that way. And so there, there's a real expansion in what law enforcement has access to, um, even if they don't have access to the content of our of our communications. And that's definitely true. I think the point that some law enforcement officials, such as David Bittcower at the Department of Justice, when he was testifying before Congress, made is that there are these more run-of-the-mill type cases. Someone 
in this case in Miami, for example, a federal criminal case, a truck driver kidnapped his girlfriend, assaulted her when he was tried. He claimed that uh, it was all consensual, that this was his girlfriend. She said no, she'd been sexually assaulted. He, in fact, had recorded a video on his cell phone that showed her very clearly being assaulted, that was played at the trial, resulted in his conviction. So that although there are um, many instances in which metadata would allow law enforcement to connect people to crimes, there will be another subset of cases, perhaps not with the most intelligent criminals, but where yeah. access to the data stored on the phone itself um, will be important. Look, there's no denying that um, one of the functions of encryption is to protect people from government surveillance. Um, I think that's a good. Um, I believe in privacy. I believe in particularly in, in a digital age that we're increasingly uh, subject to, to government surveillance. Not always nefarious, but um, with data retention, it's possible. So it's also important, I think, to acknowledge that there are some downsides to encryption. I mean, there will be cases, um, I think they're relatively rare, but there will be cases where uh, digital security may undermine law enforcement. That, I think that's, we should accept that. To my mind, and this is one of the reasons why we did the report in the first place last year, the debate really framed encryption as solely a negative. Encryption was seen and you have to go back to about a year and a half ago when James Comey, early on in his tenure at the FBI, started talking about going dark, the going dark problem. To a certain extent, it is a problem, but it's also a question of trade-offs. All public policy is about trade-offs. And so we need to think through, I think, whether in light of those situations uh, that might be problematic from the perspective of law enforcement, whether we want to give up digital security and what does that mean we lose? And what does that mean not only that we lose, because here of course we're talking about um, you know, us as Americans in the United States, but of course we're also talking about technology companies that are global. So it's not just, there's a sort of an externality here that we don't always take into account. And that is that if we don't, uh, if we don't take into account the impact that compromising digital security has on people around the world, I think we're doing a real disservice to those, to those people. So it's, all, it's a question of trade-offs that I think is important for people to acknowledge. And bringing that into the specific context of the Apple case, which mm -hmm. explored these trade-offs, and your report was really, I think, one of the first to try and set forth a robust legal framework for... Mm -hmm analyzing these types of trade-offs. And unfortunately, in the Apple case, just to provide some background, the FBI, uh, with the assistance of a third party, figured out a technological solution that would allow them to access the encrypted contents of the cell phone in question, which belonged to one of the San Bernardino shooters. Mm -hmm. And Apple itself had said that they didn't have the ability to do that. The FBI thought they didn't have the ability to do it either. Tim Cook had said, if we get access or if there's a security vulnerability like this, it will be like cancer. Mm -hmm. And so does the fact that the FBI has now discovered this security vulnerability 
are, are we all at risk now? Um, or were those consequences overstated? And should the FBI have to share the nature of that security vulnerability with mm -hmm. Apple? Mm -hmm. So those are all great questions. Um, we could do a whole another seminar on all those <laughs> questions. Um, I, so, so first, first off, um, I don't think th uh, that Apple in any way was acting in bad faith in its arguments. I think its principal argument was that in order for us to crack this phone, essentially, uh, it would have to create code. Um, and so it would be compelled to create a vulnerability in their device. And that had both precedential impact, right? So an impact on all those future cases where law enforcement in the United States and abroad would seek to compel some kind of vulnerability in their device um, or in a particular device or in a category of devices. So that was one thing. And I think they were, they were right. That was, um, I think that was a legitimate argument. Now, they didn't know the vulnerability. And it's important to understand that there's, there's actually a market out there for, um, for identifying vulnerabilities. And many tech companies pay top dollar to hackers uh, to you know, give them vulnerabilities that they identify. So what it sounds like is this case got a huge amount of publicity. And footnote, this is what most technologists said would happen. Um, you get all this publicity, and basically you got um, some tech, well, some technologists or a tech company. I guess the, the, the suggestion is it was an Israeli company That's that right. identified the flaw and you know, gave the flaw, sold the flaw, I have no idea, uh, to the FBI, and they were able to open the phone. Um, you know, another footnote query, you know, what they found on the phone. Um, apparently they, the, the couple, you know, destroyed two other phones and left this one alone. So I, I have my doubts about what was on there, but that's sort of, that's beside the point. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in, in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now and and it's it's a good progression for society it's good that people 
are, are not just you know, tolerating, but appreciating diversity. And that's the message, is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity. I think that whoever you are, follow your passion. Follow what you believe in. Follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Um, but I think what, what happened in this situation, to my mind, is a, um, I mean, I hate to frame it as a victory for digital security, but this is how it should work, I think, in terms of not requiring, uh, not requiring the digital sector, di you know, private companies to undermine the vulnerability of their devices across the board, um, but to really find ways into particular devices using brute force as was, um, as was used here. I do think that if the FBI does not share that vulnerability with Apple, that that's tremendous bad faith. Because what that means is, and this doesn't mean for all phones, right? This means for, I think we're talking about the Apple 5C and that particular operating system. And there's been changes in, and I don't hold a brief for Apple, but from what I understand, there's been changes in the security system that Apple uses on its devices now. So whatever was found on the 5C probably doesn't apply in this case, but we don't know. And, and you know, for the sake of all of our security, all of, the, uh, all of us who use iPhone 5s, you know, we should, we should have, Apple, Apple should receive from, uh, from the FBI that vulnerability. Do you think that courts will be more skeptical of requests by the government if they ask for third-party assistance from Apple, from Samsung, from other carriers in the future? Because in this case, the government said there was no way to access the phone, and in fact, there apparently was a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, FBI was very clear in its pleadings. And, and this, again, this is another reason why I think that this, there's a sort of victory for digital security here, which is... This is all on the record. And what we see out of, and I really encourage people, I mean, to the extent you have time to do this, um, go back, go and look at some of the, uh, the, the briefings, the briefs in, in this case, because they're, they're really fascinating. But what you see is Apple making a very strong case on the law. Um, and you see the, the members, you know, different aspects, different elements of the tech sector lining up with Apple and making very strong arguments, uh, and you see you know, members of civil society, NGOs, lining up with Apple in favor of digital security. And then you, and you have the Apple, uh, the FBI briefs. And in those briefs, they were very clear about what they could not do. And I think that was, I think it was a, an unfortunate move on the FBI's part because most of the claims that they made about their ability to um, access material, access the device, were not in fact accurate. And so I do think that courts, to the extent that it's entered into the record, of course, courts will look twice, um, think twice about accepting um, FBI's claims. I think the FBI will get tremendous amount of pushback. I think at the state level, because this isn't just about what the FBI is asking, um, the district attorney uh, of Manhattan, um, Cyrus Vance Jr., has been pushing for this and did a report actually on 
um, on this last fall or last summer. Um, so state actors are going to be pushing for access to encrypted devices as well, encrypted communications as well. And I think given the way the debate uh, was framed and the way it, it uh, kind of unfolded, I think that that's, that courts should look, think twice about it. And there will be, by the way, one of the, it's not just courts, there'll be some knockoff effects also. In Congress, uh, there's a bill right now that um, Congressman Ted Lieu, who's in Southern California, He's one of the few uh, members of Congress with a computer science degree from Stanford. Um, he, not that there are other computer science people at Stanford, but anyway, you understand. Um, he, he and a couple others have a bill um, to basically preempt state law so that states cannot undermine digital security you know, through encryption as well. Do you think it matters whether the FBI has found a software vulnerability or a hardware vulnerability? So what the FBI was originally asking Apple to do was to write a software update for the iPhone, which would disable its auto-erase feature. There's an auto-erase option on the iPhone where if you enter a password 10 times incorrectly, it erases the uh, key that would be necessary to access the encrypted data. And Apple argued that if they wrote this software for one iPhone, it could escape into the wild, undermining our security generally. And there's been speculation that what the FBI actually found, at least potentially, was a hardware vulnerability mm -hmm. where they could dump the memory from the phone, from the flash chip on the phone. They could try a few passwords copy that memory. If they hit the 10 password limit, they just copy it over again, try another 10 times mm -hmm. and keep doing that till they got the right password. Mm -hmm. And are hardware vulnerabilities as dangerous to the public as large as software vulnerabilities? They require physical control of a phone itself, mm -hmm. potentially for a long time. This isn't something a criminal gang is gonna do to steal your identity. Um, but something that governments might be able to do in limited situations legally with a warrant approved by a court. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, again, it's a great question. And I mean, I don't think since I'm not a technologist, I can't I can't really evaluate sort of the software versus hardware at any real level of certainly not technological sophistication. But I think the main point that you, I mean, really said nicely is, you know, with the software, it would have been. I mean, again, we don't know yet, um, but if it was a software vulnerability, then, you know, we're talking about a vulnerability that could apply across other devices. Um, what I'm hearing from most technologists is that it was more likely a hardware uh, vulnerability and that it was a kind of mirroring of the device's uh, memory and then accessing it in the way that Jacob described it. I find that much less of a concern than the software vulnerability because it really requires, first of all, it requires a targeted kind of focus on a particular, um, you know, in a particular law enforcement situation. Now, I still think it should be, it has to be in those situations subject to court order. I think those, um, those kinds of issues. Now here we're talking about, let's say a, a dead terrorist and, uh, and his phone and, you know, the FBI, or San Bernardino County kind of screwed up in terms of denying themselves access to the uploaded 
data on iCloud, but that's like a whole another issue. Um, but I think in this particular situation, um, that if it was a hardware device and if we're talking about court ordered or court permitted access to a device, that's much less of a concern than general vul vulnerability across devices. And I think another question this raises probably more broadly is in regard to uh, corporate control over our personal data as opposed to, to government access. So we have a lot of experience striking an appropriate balance between individuals and the government in terms of their privacy rights. But we have much less experience with technology companies as stewards of our personal data. You know, we have wearables like Fitbit, smart home devices like Nest, uh, connected cars, so-called internet of things. These are all creating extensive amounts of data, sometimes about very intimate aspects of our lives. And it seems like there's open questions about what responsibility private companies have, if any, with that mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. This is a huge issue. Um, it's actually an issue where I think in some respects, um, Europe is ahead of us um, because they have very strict data retention policies, right? So when we think about all of the data that's being collected, the question is, do these companies get to hold on to that data indefinitely? Is there a period of time um, during which they can hold on to it, but then, um, but then have to, uh, you know, trash it. Um, what what are the rules around that? And I think now Europe has a very strong tradition. In part, this is driven. I mean, it's driven by culture and you know the history of both World War II and the communist era and surveillance. But it's also driven by law in the sense that European human rights law is much stronger in terms of privacy protection. So they've developed a whole set of laws around data protection. Per you know, precisely to deal with this issue of, um, you know, how we, what we accept in terms of what the corporate sector retains. Um, and because, and this is, you know, we haven't mentioned one name here that I think has been sort of is, is the, um, well, Edward Snowden's revelations, let's say, um, has really framed for both Americans, but also people around the world, what the risks are, and in particular, what the risks are when it comes to data retention. So if you have corporate actors retaining all of this data, to what extent will government demand access to that data at some point, whether, you know, to sort of mine the data, uh, to identify security risks in a kind of um, you know, needle in a haystack kind of fishing expedition. Um, to what extent can they use that data for purposes of, you know, particular targeted law enforcement or intelligence activities? Um, and I think that, I mean, to a great extent, the Snowden revelations really highlighted for people um, the threat to, you know, in the digital age, right, to privacy in a digital age. And it's been, I think, especially pronounced in Europe. Now, the Reality is that you know Europeans, and we could say at both the you know the civil society level and the government were very upset uh, by what Edward Snowden revealed. I mean, unless you were in the UK, where the UK is. I mean, if anybody's been to the UK recently, you know it's already basically a surveillance state. I don't mean that in the Orwellian nature, but every single corner that you're on has a camera when you're in the UK. I mean, it is. And so data is being collected on you wherever you are. 
There was a little bit less of an outcry there, in particular because GCHQ, the National Security Agency's partner, was deeply involved in, um, uh, in the activities that were revealed by Edward Snowden. Across Europe, though, over the last year or so, we're seeing new laws. And again, I mentioned the French, um, but we're seeing it in the UK. We're seeing new laws on both um, undermining data retention policies. Um, we see this potentially um, happening at the EU level. So these are areas where um, at, there was this initial you know, post-Snowden revelations, June of 2013, of outrage. And yet we see maybe a movement that could undermine digital privacy. I mean, maybe the, the ultimate part of your question I think that's really important is what responsibility do we think the corporate sector owes us as, as individuals or as users if we want to be kind of anonymized in that way? What, what is their responsibility to protect our privacy? What is the responsibility, say, of Google to protect your search history, right? Your search history is you. I mean, it's weird. If you went back and looked at your search history over the last year, I mean, some of it might disappoint you in yourself, um, but some of it might also, you know, it would, it would probably be, a, I mean, it sounds cheesy to say this, but it'd be a little bit of a window into your soul, your curiosities at a given moment. So let's say you're in an environment now, you know, you might feel fine with our current government in the United States and you don't think they're going to, you know, uh, uh, want access to our search histories, but who knows what that, I mean, and this isn't, you know, sort of, if I raised this a year ago, it might not have seemed as real, but you know, who knows what the next government might demand of the corporate sector when it comes to sharing simply search history, right? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot -E com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. So 
that, I mean, I think this is a real major issue. I mean, we're launching a project that tries to identify what are corporate sector responsibilities, but I think that it's not, um, it's one of these open areas where it's unclear where the government might head over the next several years in terms of demanding access, not just to our devices, but to, you know, our very, you know, curiosity. We'd like to remind our listening audience that this is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California, and you're listening to David Kay, the UN Special Rapporteur, discussing national security, privacy, and freedom of expression online. So the first question we have from the audience is about um, the role of private companies such as Twitter and Facebook in upholding freedom of speech. So there's been a large controversy over the use of communications mediums um, such as Twitter for recruiting individuals to ISIL. Um, some in the government have suggested that the uh, provisions of law which provide for immunity for companies like Facebook or Twitter for materials that third parties post on their platforms um, should be replaced. Mm -hmm. And um, what is your view of both the responsibilities of these companies and whether it would be permissible for the government to basically alter the incentives they have to police their own users? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great question. Um, so, and it's a complicated question. So let me, let me address it in just a couple of different ways. So one is the sort of the last part of it. And this is about um, the liability or the immunities that intermediaries have. An intermediary like Twitter, it's an intermediary or Facebook. It's a Twitter because it provides, uh, it's an intermediary because it provides a platform, right, for others to communicate, right? So it's not that Twitter itself is communicating. I mean, if you buy that way of thing, I mean, we could, that might be something to interrogate also, but, you know, it's not that Twitter is, is communicating, but it's a mediary, right? It's allowing communication. So, um, from my perspective and from, you know, most U.S. law perspective and law in Europe, um, generally speaking, intermediaries are immune uh, from uh, liability. They're, they're held to not be liable for the content that's posted on their platforms. And why is that? I mean, it's because, you know, you want to encourage freedom of expression. I mean, these are platforms to encourage it and to the extent that um, the intermediary is going to be held liable. They'll restrict the space for expression, right? So there was a case in the European Court of Human Rights that actually held an Estonian uh, media company liable for some of the comments that were posted on the comment section in relation to, to a story. The story is interesting, but I won't get into it. But what basically what that forces a small media company in Estonia to do is to shut down it's comment section. Now, comment sections are crazy, um, but sometimes they're enlightening, and they're also in a place where a lot of people communicate and express themselves. So there are real um, implications. So that's sort of the background in intermediary liability. So the question is, I think there's a couple of ways of thinking about it in the context of, um, of you know, digital uh, intermediaries. So one is in the context of, say, recruitment. Um, and I think that's a, it's a problem area. I actually, so I'm not sure there's a whole lot of um, concrete recruitment going on. Um, there is some recruitment in which Twitter is used. Um, most, most of the data that I've seen about recruitment is that recruitment requires face-to-face -face 
interaction in order for recruitment to be effective. But let's even imagine that Twitter or Facebook are real sites for, uh, for recruitment. I think th this is an example of an area where, um, where government has a legitimate interest in gaining access to those kinds of, of communications. It's a totally different question to ask whether um, you know, uh, an Islamic State kind of group or any other terrorist group um, should be, um, you know, how we deal with their posting of, say, videos on, let's say, YouTube, right? So should YouTube be required to take down uh, a beheading video? Um, should, should governments be able to require YouTube to take down the video? Should, if they don't, if they don't take down the video, should they be held liable to some form of damages? And I think there, I mean, there's, it'd be a very interesting conversation to have specifically about that. I think there's an argument that can be made for the public interest value of people seeing these videos. I'm not sure how much recruitment value they have, but there is a public interest, I think, in knowing what's actually happening uh, in these, um, you know, in the context of what, what terrorists are doing. So that, I mean, that's an issue. I'm not going to resolve it, you know, here, but I think it's an issue for people to think about in terms of, you know, takedown policies, whether we want the digital actors to be responsible for taking that material down. Um, and I think there are, you know, strong arguments across the spectrum um, on, that, on that issue. I think one thing that we do see, though, quite regularly is that governments are expanding beyond the kind of, you know, the terrorist the beheading videos that need to be taken down, which I think you could make a lot of good arguments about why they should be taken down. But in places around the world, you see governments demanding of, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and also local, um, you know, domestic social media and search engines, um, really demanding the takedown of material that doesn't fall into the category of, you know, like a, um, a beheading, right? It could be, so, for example, in Turkey, there have been a couple of really terrible terrorist attacks in the last few weeks. And um, the government uh, brought down Twitter, I mean, brought down the whole service, um, but also regularly demands the taking down of, um, you know, video that shows the terrorist attack or the aftermath of the attack. And I'm not, I'm not quite sure that falls into the same category of terrorist recruitment. Now, it might, you might be able to make the argument, but these are issues of public interest and we're seeing takedowns quite regularly. And we're seeing that expand into, and again, this is Turkey, it's a very unfortunate uh, case right now where the move is to criminalize uh, journalists for reporting on terrorism. So to a certain extent, there's, if we could narrow it to particular kinds of recruitment or videos, Okay, fine, we could do that. But to the extent it expands to all the way to journalism and to academics in places like Turkey, um, I think we're, we're running some very serious risks. With the overall um, view being that it's relatively difficult to restrict the crumbs of identifying information and preferences that you leave online, um, I know there's a recent report published by the Harvard Berkman Center for the Internet and Society, and it ultimately concluded that this going dark debate, the debate over encrypting our phones, is ultimately not um, as important as the technological developments that are occurring in other areas. So that even if law enforcement can't get access to certain types of data that's stored on phones, 
that will be more than offset by the ability of U.S. law enforcement agencies to exploit the comparatively weak security of sensors, connected devices, uh, data in transmission, as this is ultimately or will ultimately be the subject of a, a legislative debate here in Congress over what the appropriate access should be for law enforcement. Are you of the view that the government should essentially accept the loss of information in these types of cases where there's data relevant to a criminal investigation stored mm -hmm. physically on the phone? Because overall, the technological developments are creating more information that, that benefit law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wouldn't frame it as um, losing access to information. I would say not getting as much information as they otherwise would get because I know that sounds like a lawyerly semantic thing, but the truth is law enforcement has access, as we were talking about before, has access to a tremendous amount of information. And I don't think there's, I, I think, you know, what we're talking about is a relatively narrow set of information, at least if we're talking about Apple FBI, right, about our communications. But it's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, maybe over the long term, this will happen. Um, but to deny the government access to metadata and other tools that they have in this in an age of surveillance. So I, you know, I I do think that I think that Congress should be legislating to protect digital security. And and maybe a point that I didn't hit hard enough at the beginning was, you know, individual digital security is national security. I mean, our ability to protect ourselves, our ability to protect our networks, to protect our infrastructure, that's, that's a core national security issue right now. And so, you know, it's easy for government to frame national security or public order as only about terrorism um, or, uh, you know, child pornography and, and kidnappings and so forth. But security is much broader. And in a digital age, if we're going to talk about protecting ourselves, whether it's from hackers, whether it's from terrorists, we have to, at the very least, you know, protect our own digital security. And so, I mean, my hope is that, you know, with people like Congressman Liu and others, um, that there actually will be momentum for, and actually, I think this will happen, um, that it won't just be liberal Democrats like Ted Lieu, um, but also conservative Republicans who believe in small government and government not having access to our individual lives, that there can be a, a, a kind of new coalition around digital security. And I think that's, that's possible. And in the interim, we've heard Cyrus Vance has said that, the, that New York, the state authorities there have uh, I think scores of iPhones that they'd like to crack. Uh, I heard there's around a, at least a dozen other cases similar to the San Bernardino case um, proceeding across the country now. Um, obviously, we have Congress in an election year, probably not disposed to address these thorny issues. What should courts be doing mm. in the absence of legislative action um, to resolve this really sharp dispute? Yeah. So, um, look. So FBI has been relying on the All Writs Act, right? So they've been relying on this act from, you know, the first Congress, I mean, the, literally the first Congress, um, that, that provides a kind of fail-safe for access to all sorts of information. And it's, it's just not appropriate. It's not an appropriate tool as a matter of law for, um, for the government to use, in my view. And so 
I think that in the interim, courts should be um, denying the government the ability to use the All Writs Act. I mean, here we're narrowly just talking about U.S. law, but they should be denying the government the right to use that as a tool to gain access to information. If that means denying them access in particular situations, I think that's that's clearly something Congress is going to have to resolve. Um, I don't think I don't think it's it's going to destroy law enforcement um, to do that. It will make law enforcement's job harder, though. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week.